Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. So I realized in preparing for this week's show, I haven't done much in the realm of satire at all on the show. So today is largely devoted to that. Julie Schumacher's first published story, Reunion, was written to fulfill an undergrad writing assignment. The prompt was tell a family tale. So that's your free writing prompt of the day. You're welcome. That story went on to be reprinted in the Best American Short Stories in 1983. She subsequently had stories and essays in The Atlantic, The New York Times, MS, The Chronicle for Higher Education, on and on, several other venues. She's the author of nine novels, including The Body is Water, Dear Committee Members, and The Shakespeare Requirement. Five of those novels are for young readers. She's also the author of Doodling for Academics, a satirical coloring book. Julie lives in St. Paul and is a Regents Professor at the University of Minnesota, where she teaches in the Creative Writing Program in the Department of English. She's won multiple teaching awards and has been recognized as a scholar of the college, so hopefully she's going to be teaching us much today. Her latest, The English Experience, is the third in the Satirical Academia Trilogy. We know Professor Jason Fitger from Dear Committee Members and The Shakespeare Requirement. We are following him now on a trip abroad with 11 of his students to England. In the course of this conversation, in addition to writing effective satire, we'll chat about dealing with recurring characters, using time to structure a novel, keeping track of a big cast of characters and helping your readers to do the same, using letters, essays, and other forms of writing in fiction, as well as Julie's writing insights, some of her writing essays, her thoughts about MFAs, and much more. Before I bring her on, a quick reminder about our Patreon page. If you are enjoying these behind-the-scenes conversations of how these books get made, or you've gotten some writing advice or insights on how to approach your own work, you can visit us at patreon.com slash writersonwriting. Up there, we offer a few little perks for your membership. If you join, you get weekly writing tips, you get writing prompts. Our authors have been submitting their own prompts, so you, you get insight into those. It's kind of a very fun way to stay in touch with us. Ask some of these authors your questions before they come on, get to know who is coming on the show before the schedule is announced. So it's a great way to keep in touch with us and a great way for us to keep in touch with you. You can visit us there at patreon.com slash writers on writing. As well, we would greatly appreciate it if you left a review of our show up on Amazon, Spotify, Apple, however you consume your podcasts, leaving reviews of the show really helps us out as well. Okay, on with the show. Julie, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So I have to go back to this story about reunion. So that first published short story that began as an undergrad writing assignment and ended yes. up in the best American short stories. I love that. But I bring it up for a few reasons. So first, had you been writing for a long time by that point and you knew that was where your career was aimed or was this the sign that said, hey, you know, maybe I should be a writer? Well, I'd been writing for a long time, but I can't say I was doing it well. Uh, it was something that I had always 
love to do, or it was an outlet for me ever since I was fairly young. You know, um, you have a lousy day in the eighth grade. What do you do? You open your notebook and you write it down. That was the level of sophistication at the beginning. But I started once I was in college, I had a a teacher I loved, Diane Rules, recently gone on to better things. And she was a magnetic person. She had this writing exercise, tell a family tale. And I exaggerated a few things about <laughs> my family at home, changed some items, inflated others. And she said to me, you should send this to a contest. So I did. And it won third place in the California quarterly uh, contest and then was picked up a, a year or two had gone by by the time I heard that it had been selected for the best American by Ann Tyler, whom I idolized at the time, yeah. um, still idolized. And it was such a fluke. I was, I had graduated from college. I was typing for a living. I was thinking of writing, but not seriously enough. You know, I was just post-college trying to figure out what to do with myself. That story, you know, that publication was such a kick in the pants for me. It just told me, hey, maybe you should do this. Maybe maybe you should go to grad school. Maybe you should apply to Cornell University, which I did and miraculously got in. Really with that one story, I was afraid <laughs> when I got there to tell them I had not written much else by that time. But it, you know, it was one of those life flukes where something just falls out of the sky in front of you and you grab hold of it. It was a marvelous thing that helped to change my life. Yeah. I mean, I feel like young writers or maybe even old writers always want some sign, like, should I do this or should I go to veterinary school? You know? Yeah. And you never get it, except you did. So I thought that was <laughs> well, I never got the sign about veterinary school, but I was, <laughs> I was thinking about I was trying to work my way into editing and publishing in New York. I hadn't made much headway. And I was thinking about getting a degree in education and becoming a Spanish teacher, an English teacher. I had many thoughts and plans. But again, that that story was was a bit of magic that came into my life. Yeah. The other thing about that is that it began with a prompt. And I know the Dear Committee members also sort of began with a prompt or kind of a personal challenge to yourself. And so I was wondering if that is sort of a generative way that you approach things is either through, you know, giving yourself a little challenge or some sort of prompt. Is that common or is that just sort of a, a theme between those two? I think sometimes I'm very conscious of giving myself a prompt, as I was uh, with that first story reunion and in Dear Committee Members, you know, could I write a novel in the form of letters of reference? But more often, it's something I may work my way toward a prompt. I may decide, okay, this is set. The story takes place in one day. The story takes place in one hour. I have a good writing pal, Alison McGee, marvelous writer, and she's very, very conscious of giving herself prompts. She will choose three objects, say a, a tin lantern, a pair of skis, um, a full moon, and decide those things will be determinants in whatever she writes. It's a way of getting away from the fear of the blank page. You know, that's a huge fear, I think, for many writers, including myself. 
I have right now, I write everything by hand and I have many different kinds of notebooks, legal pads, <laughs> any sort of paper, pens. And I'm trying to find a way of working my way into one of them that will be the right notebook for something that comes next. It's fearful to me to confront those white pages. If there's a way to get a, around that by creating a prompt for yourself, a restriction, really. Yeah, I do find constraints and restrictions so useful. And I can see that all over this latest novel that we're going to talk about. But um, <laughs> but before we get there, I'm going to I'm going to let you introduce it so that we we all are on the same page because it's brand new out. And uh, maybe some of your longtime readers can sort of guess where we're going because they'll know Jason Fitger from from your other novels. But yeah, <laughs> take us into the English experience and, and that'll set us up for more questions. Okay, great. Well, um, the English experience, the idea came to me when I was teaching travel abroad classes. I was taking groups of undergraduates to Spain. I kept thinking while there, what would Jason Fitger make of this? You know, he would have something to say about <laughs> this experience. So what I've written is a novel in which my professor Fitger of Payne University takes 11 undergrads to England, to London mainly. He is not fond of England as a country. He had a lousy experience there years ago with his ex-wife. He says, I think that it involved um, a cylinder of blood pudding and some poorly timed sex as well as a lot of brain. <laughs> yes. But he's he's sort of shoehorned into this by the provost and he gets there, mishaps ensue. Parts of the novel consist of the undergraduate students' bits of writing. He requires them to write two pages per day on the things that they experience while in England. So it was great fun. That was my restriction really in this novel, how to create a book which included <laughs> lots of undergraduate prose and to create these characters for Fitger. In the, in the previous two books, I concentrated much more on faculty and dynamics among faculty members and administrators at Payne University. Here, I thought, no, no, it's time to really turn toward the students in a big way. Did you always know this was going to be a trilogy and you were going to be following him or was he put to bed and then he emerged and surprised you again? He, he was put to bed and he kept getting out of bed again. Yeah. <laughs> he kept getting up and out. I never, no, it never occurred to me it would be a trilogy. Uh, the first one to me was a standalone volume. I hope all of them are standalones, even if they are also a trilogy. Yeah. Um, the second one I started because there was a conversation in my department about whether Shakespeare should or should not be taught, should or should not be required for people majoring in English. And the third one, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to write about this guy again. Here he comes. But I am done. I am done with him now. I don't want him to wear out his welcome. I want to leave him where I'm still very, very fond of him, as much a jerk as he can be. Well, it's kind of nice, I would think, to, I, I'm not in the world of academia, but I would think it would be, you know, nice to have sort of an alter ego saying all the things that I'm sure all of us would say if we were <laughs> in that profession. So yeah, it's, it's true. He's a, I always think of him as a little evil version of myself. 
I try to be <laughs> a polite and reasonable person up at work and elsewhere, but Fitker doesn't have that that <laughs> compunction. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> well, before we dive into the writerly part of the conversation, I mean, I, I guess let's just observe that much has changed in academia since the first two books came out. I mean, much has changed you know, in the last six months or, you know, mm. probably while we're sitting here talking, it's changing. I mean, obviously with, with the book bans, but trigger warnings and mental health issues and obviously technology, you name it. I guess a, a couple of questions will spin out of this, but talk a little bit about writing a book while things are changing so much as you're writing it. And if yeah. that posed any challenges. Uh, there, yeah, there definitely were challenges. On the one hand, I did set it pre-pandemic. The third book occurs in 2013, mainly because I came up with a dog in the second book and I needed that dog to still be alive in the oh, third. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I couldn't set it um, in current times. So there are, you know, obviously some issues, including the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, that were not um, present in this latest novel. But What's constantly throughout all three of them is the struggle over the the fate of the humanities. You know, I was just listening to NPR yesterday, a whole program about small community colleges in rural places, um, smaller universities closing their doors entirely, you know, students walking away entirely from majors in English, history, philosophy, languages, religion, in order to do something practical, um, you know, tuition increasing, student debt remaining a terrible problem. Those things are woven throughout all three of these books. And I think, you know, they're probably getting worse in the third, but they're present in all three. Yeah, I had just had a um, friend laid off yesterday who was just mm -hmm. about to get tenure in her MFA oh. program. They just canceled the whole MFA program. So. Oh, no. Yeah. And we can kind of talk about the fate of MFAs as yeah, well. But yeah. but yeah, I mean, tapping into this generation and yeah, I'd kind of forgotten it was set in 2013. I knew the pandemic wasn't here mm -hmm. and some of those latest mm -hmm. issues, but the, you know, the language <laughs> these kids use, I have a 22 year old. So I, you know, I'm aware of the the generational gap. And I guess if you're steeped in them, as you would be if you're a professor, mm -hmm. it'd be easier to tap into those voices. But yeah, I was kind of wondering if these students, which of them were either confounding to you or trying to find these 11 different chorus of voices in that generation, because they're confounding to me. Well, even in 2013, when the last novel is set, Fitger is confounded by the technological yeah. <laughs> wizardry of these undergrads. They're so far ahead of him as my students are ahead of me. And he's supposed to be keeping tabs on everybody and making himself available 24 seven. But, you know, some of them are texting him, some of them are tweeting him, some of them are emailing him and he's desperately trying <laughs> to figure out, you know, who is this person? Is this a phone number? You know, how do I communicate with these people who are really communicating on another level? <laughs> entirely. As for the number of characters, that that was tricky for me because I wanted him to have a group. He needed to be traveling with a group of people. But I began with, I think, 15 students in the, mm. in the first draft of the novel. I realized quickly that was too many. I was yeah. having trouble keeping them straight. 
I, what, I, what I did was I eliminated a few of them entirely. I sort of combined one or two of them into a single character. I also created a set of identical twins, basically collapsing two people into one. And I have one character who just basically vanishes as soon as they get to England. He's traveling Europe by himself, sending breezy messages about his newest location in Paris or Budapest. So there he is, one of the 11, but I didn't have to deal with him on screen. Clever. And the thing that you did so well is now now that we're talking about managing a big cast of characters, you had Fitger come up with mnemonic devices for how he was going <laughs> to remember them, which was super helpful for the reader because, you know, we're kind of hit with these 11 people yes. pretty early on. And it's hard for the readers to keep them straight. I mean, their personalities obviously unspooled in obvious distinctive ways as everybody's does over the course of time. But at the beginning, it's it's a lot. And so he had these funny yeah. little ways that he was going to remember them, which helped all of us remember them too. Yes. S uh, for suitcases equals Sonia. F for feline, for Felicity. Felicity being a person who adores her cat and has never left her cat before. So that that helped me to think of the characters and to differentiate them. But I hope it also helps the reader. And it helps Fitker. He's a person who often is not paying enough attention to his students. He's forced eventually to pay attention to them. But initially, you know, he's thinking his own thoughts and he does need these mnemonics for his own <laughs> for his own sanity. Well, and his mnemonics are revealing of his own personality because some of them are a little snarky. You know, he's got E for eczema or yes. eczema, you know, which is something else, which, you know, it's also, yeah, what what would Fitger's mnemonics be for these people, which are yeah. not always totally generous, right? <laughs> so, yes, that's true. So tell me a little bit about these youngins and <laughs> getting to know them and who may have given you trouble and who you tapped into very easily. Yeah, that is tricky. There's always one or two characters in anything I write, there's always one that remains a little foggy, a little bit out of reach. I think in every novel I've written, there will be somebody that I just recognize. I think, yep, got got that character. I know who that is. I know their voice. I know what they're going to say next. And then there's somebody who who feels that they're behind a little pane of glass somehow, and I'm always scratching it at the glass trying to get in and, and to figure out who they are. And this one, I think there's a character named Zana. And she's someone that also, I think, remains a bit elusive for Fitker. Early on, he keeps thinking that he's seen her before or he recognizes or knows her. He can't think of, of where or why that might be. And as he was grappling with his lousy memory and trying to figure her out, to puzzle her out. I suppose I was doing the same, giving that difficulty over to a character helped me to figure out who that character was. If I'm having trouble placing Xana physically, psychologically, emotionally, well, I let my character, my main character, Jason Fitger, have trouble with her also. And then he and I work our way toward her together, I suppose. Well, you had to write from the student's point of view 
in that they are submitting these essays. He's making them write these daily <laughs> essays. Yes. The, the first thing I thought is, I don't want to read 11 essays from these people every day. <laughs> but that and was nice. Bitterly, it's it's way too much work. Um, it's He requires, I think, 500 words a day from them while they are there, um, just writing, writing, writing. And so, yeah, there's a there's a fair amount of student writing in the book. I did Again, that's something I cut back on. I thought, yeah, maybe the reader doesn't want to read so much undergraduate prose, but it's it's endearing to me. You know, their malapropisms, their punctuation errors, everything is, you can see the effort in it and the striving and the frustration. There's one character, Brent, who is always saying, well, I'm better at math. I hope I don't have to write while we're on this trip. I, I struggle with my writing and writing is not, top of the list of things I have struggled with. I struggled terribly with math. I, you know, I still add on my fingers. It's, I just don't feel like my brain is capable of it, no matter how I, I struggle, but that struggling is, is so poignant, you know, it's for someone who wants to master something and always feels that it remains out of reach. That to me is, is a, I don't know, it's a, an admirable and a poignant thing. Especially when Brent then declares he's going to be a novelist. I know he wants to be a novelist. <laughs> he wants to be a novelist. It's sad. <laughs> yeah, and and Fitger, as professor, can't say to him, you know, that's not for you. I think you should try something else. You know, maybe you'd be good in sales. Maybe you'd be good at music. Maybe you'd be good at math. This is not, you know, he can't say that. But that's of course what he is thinking. That's when we were told to go to veterinary school. Yes, that's we <laughs> off yes. to veterinary school. Yes. <laughs> The challenge in this, I would think, in telling a story is having a story arc. Mm -hmm. There is a plot. Things are happening. These poor people are moving through a country. I get the sense that very few of them actually want to be in. But you have to do that through these student writings. And so things have to happen. And you gave yourself this lovely defined time of the novel. This trip is three yes, weeks. And three so weeks. that that's going to be sort of the capsule around which the story is told. Mm -hmm. But tell me a little bit about all of those constraints on you, how then a novel makes in terms of story. How hard was that for you? Well, again, I do like a constraint and time is a terrific constraint. In Dear Committee Members, when I was thinking about the novel ahead of time, I thought, well, it's it's an academic year. It'll start in September and it'll be done by you know, early summer. And that just helped me to have that sort of framework. It felt like I was putting up the net on a tennis court. Okay, here's where the ball has to go. <laughs> you can't hit it behind you. Don't hit it over the fence. It needs to go over the net. This is This is the direction that I'm going to go in. The thing that I didn't figure out ahead of time in the English experience, I thought, oh, it'll be fun. I'll have all these bits of student prose and Fitger will be, of course, frustrated as he always is. But I don't know why this didn't occur to me early on, but I thought I need a narrative arc for each of these students. You know, the whole point of any sort of study abroad is that, you know, you read the advertisements for study abroad, it changes a person. It should change a person to especially at age 18, 19, leave the place with which they are familiar and do something very new, very different, encounter things, look at things they've never seen before. So I'd always thought 
Fitka will change and there will be student writing. That was where I started. And then I thought, oh, shit, I need each of these people also to have some something happen to them, some change, some evolution, even, even if not a very dramatic one. And I don't plan enough. I know there are writers who do loads of planning before they write a book. I start with something that resembles half a page of bullet points. And then I go blithely sailing in thinking everything will be easy. Things always <laughs> seem so easy before you begin them. Then you get lost in the high weeds. And that was when I started to cut back on the number of characters. I thought, oh, you have cut yourself a very large piece of pie here. Let's try to contain it more, create a few more constraints, figure out the arcs associated with, with these people before moving along any farther. So that was a challenge to me in this book. Yeah. I heard that in Dear Committee Members, so that novel is structured around these letters of recommendation that mm -hmm. Victor is writing. And so I heard that, you, and you write exclusively in the beginning in notebooks as opposed to on the computer. Yes. So I heard that you wrote those letters on the right-hand side of your page in your notebook. And then along the left-hand side of your page, you would have sort of what you're talking about now, like these character arcs, notes about, I don't know what that sort of looked like on the left side of the page, mm -hmm. but I, I I don't know if you did something similar for this book and kind of what the, the left side of the page looked like. Yeah, I try to do that. I, I try to, again, find just the right notebook after scrawling in many legal pads. And the left side is... I hope the editorial half of my brain, which is, you know, given to thoughts like um, this whole first chapter stinks, it needs to start with chapter three, or smaller details, you know, let's make this character anxious. I want this character to be an anxious person. Right now, they seem too calm. Hints for myself so that on the right side, I will just keep going. I know that I'm capable of writing one paragraph and crossing it out forever and just continuing to cross out. So the goal is to write a couple of pages each time I sit down to write and not to cross out more than a word here, word there, but just to keep going. Even if the prose is crappy, I have to move upstream. There are other tricks between separating the generative writing half of the experience from the editorial half, but I need to shut that editor up in order to get some words down that I can later revise. The first draft is not impressive in any way, but I need to be able to write some lousy prose in order to, to get any progress underway. So you would keep going on that right side, and then after quite some time, you'd go back to the left side and make those notes. Yeah, I would try to okay. take everything up or keep on the left side, it would be notes as to what the next section would contain. You know, okay. I would get an idea from writing chapter two and think, oh, I know what I'm going to do in chapter three or four. And I would write that on the left-hand side, notes for moving forward through the rest of the book. In, in Dear Committee Members, it was much more straightforward, that sort of process, because I was able to write down future letters that Fitker would write. I remember writing down at one point, that I really wanted him to um, say something about his sex life in a letter of reference for somebody else. <laughs> I just thought there's got to be a way to do that. That would be that would be fun. So I was just suggesting ideas to myself, some of which I made use of, others I didn't. 
You know, one thing that occurs to me as we're talking is a lot of this contains student writing and a lot of the student writing is really pretty shitty. Mm-hmm. And so the inclination to clean it up, like, I mean, you, you have this lovely permission to write bad prose because yeah. that, that's the task, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, no, it was it was fun to write that kind of prose. And again, this this prose, as you say, most of it is or some of it is very lousy. And this is Payne University. You know, it's these students are not. You know, the students I generally deal with, they're not Harvard material. They are people who are struggling and they're at a university nobody's heard of outside of a, you know, 10 mile radius of of pain. So some of them, you know, again, there's, I wanted there to be a poignancy about their errors. There is, uh, again, one student who is prone to malapropisms, one who just struggles with punctuation. I was trying to differentiate their voices and think of, what sorts of prose. Some of them have verbal tics. There's a character named Sonia who <laughs> loves to start sentences and paragraphs with, well, to be honest, comma, which I, I like a lot because she's not always honest either, but she likes that phrase. So, you know, I ended up revising their lousy prose quite a bit to make it sound like the right kind of lousy. It was about creating a kind of lousy that would convey their individual personas. Yeah. The other tricky thing is just sealing this in time. I mean, going back in our time machine to 2013 and Mm -hmm. reminding ourselves where the world was because pronouns have changed, you know, um, all of that is really very new. 2013 is 10 years old, but it's really, it was a big 10 years. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So just keeping all of that straight. I don't know if you had to go back research wise and just revisit how people were emailing then and you know how I did a little I did a little bit of that and periodically I would write something down and think oh wait a second you know were people using instant messaging and when did you know when did Facebook messaging start when did all these things start I of course came very late to everything so most of the things I worried about were in existence back then I didn't necessarily know about them but they existed (laughs) right We'll be right back with more from Julie Schumacher talking about the English experience. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page. Once again, if you're enjoying the show or you've gotten any tips or tricks along the way to help you advance your writing, we sure appreciate your support. You can find us by visiting patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Julie Schumacher talking about the English experience. Well, let's talk a little bit about satire and effective satire. The first thing is, I feel like, A, we need a little more levity in our culture right now. So that's great. And then I think nobody takes anything funny anymore. Everybody's so mm-hmm. serious. So it's funny because it it feels like such a rich ground to tread on. And then it just feels like it's full of landmines all over the place. So. <laughs> And I just feel like the British are funnier than the Americans are in general. <laughs> There's a different sense of humor over there. I keep wondering if there might be a British edition or if they will not 
<laughs> not yeah. be inclined to yeah. love it out. I don't know. Well, I heard this, this probably was years ago, but you sort of were ambivalent about people ascribing you as a comic writer or a satirist. And I feel like a comic writer is a very different sort of writing, but do you still sort of generally reject the category of satire for yourself or, or is that something you now embrace? I don't reject uh, any category, but I do think categories are tricky. You know, you could call me a satirist in terms of these this trilogy, these three books. But other than that, I don't think there's much that's satirical in my earlier works. It just seemed that this character, this situation, lended itself to satire. I've written some books that I think are really sad. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, I've written some short stories that are sad. I do like some sort of levity or humor in dialogue. I feel like people are funny, you know, uh, the people I enjoy hanging out with are funny, even when things are not going well, they console each other sometimes with being able to laugh. I think being able to laugh is an important thing. So yeah, I think I'm a satirist in terms of these last three books, but I'm not always a satirist. And I resist, you know, categorizations just to the extent that sometimes they have been used to minimize people, you know, women's writing, African-American writing. Why not just, you know, this is a great book. Right. So right. sometimes the categories are useful. You know, if somebody thinks I love satires, I really want to read a satire. Well, great. I hope they find my books, but right. I hope they find them even if they aren't necessarily looking for satire. So it's a it's a two sided problem. It is interesting to come at a topic which academia now falls into for me mm -hmm. that is so, so fraught. And yeah. I mean, you, you could also talk about the school shootings and all of these things that we're now, yeah. and, yeah. and to come at it with some level of gallows humor, mm -hmm. I think it's kind of nice. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to know how to talk about it otherwise. Yeah. And I, I do think just having some some humor in fiction is a relief at this particular moment <laughs> in time in history. You know, there's so much that's grim out there when one encounters the daily news that, um, you know, it's it's hard to necessarily turn to grim in the evening when one wants to relax with, with a novel, too. Do you feel working in academia, was, was there any sort of voices in your head as you were writing this about, I don't know, offending people or going too far with something funny or not far enough or any, like, did you have a chorus of voices of your colleagues breathing down your neck? <laughs> they, my colleagues have been great. They've been so terrifically supportive. I could not have asked for more. Uh, when I published the first novel or when I was, when I sold the first novel, my spouse, who was a political science professor, he said to me, I'm glad we have different last names. You're really publishing this thing. <laughs> and so in the acknowledgments, I outed him. I said, um, you know, acknowledging my spouse, Lawrence Jacobs, who said he wished he had a different last name at this moment. But no, I feel like based on emails and comments I get from people in academia, I feel like the books are voicing something that other people have felt and experienced also, which is, of course, what you want anything you write to do for someone to read it and say, oh my God, I've, I've felt that way. I've been there. I've 
thought about that. I've wanted to say that. I think there can be a release. I get emails on a regular basis from um, professors and from administrators who say, you know, oh my God, I just served eight years as chair of my department and your book has helped keep me sane. You know, I I feel like I'm reading a funhouse version of, of my life in the past few years. And that's, that's a terrific thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many people would go into academia right now with all of this, especially lower school education with the parents' involvement now. Of- Horrible. I know. I mean, it's, I, my sister-in-law was a grade school teacher in New York for years and years, and she retired early, just frustrated with the, <laughs> the feeling that parents, politicians, newspapers, everybody can tell her what to do in her classroom when she's the one who's got, you know, 20, 30 years of experience and an MA in education, but everybody else knows better than she does how to teach. It was, I think she found it very dispiriting and it's such a, it's such a fraught thing, but that tells you how, how important it is. You know, people can have some opinions about education that are really weird and upsetting but people care deeply about, you know, what is read. Yeah. <laughs> crazy. They're, they're banning books because they really care about what is read. That's, that's crazy. Right. And that's in New York. She's in New York. Uh, yeah. She was in New York. Yeah. Wow. Not Florida, but. <laughs> yeah. So it could be worse. Yeah. Right. It could be worse. Yeah. I... Well, I wanted to direct people to your website. There's a section in there. I can't remember. I think it's called essays or they'll find your essays. There's some really great essays on writing in there that I thought were useful for people to take a look at. One of which was using real life and fiction. And <laughs> We talk about this a lot on the show and in writing workshops and whatnot of, you know, well, it happened. So mm-hmm. why is that a problem? And that essay was just so great about how to take real life events and fictionalize them. And I thought, you know, the English experience I'm imagining from your time yourself studying abroad, how you would take these experiences and fictionalize them. But I thought maybe we could just hit some of the highlights yeah. of that that essay. And uh, yeah, talk a little bit about your suggestions in that regard. Yeah, I wrote that essay such a long time ago. And I, I would start out by saying, yeah, I think everything I've written has started <laughs> with real life. And then I bend and tweak and change things so that I have something that's more of a story rather than an anecdote from real life. You know, I I tend to take things from real life that stick in my memory. And I think, why am I still thinking about that? Why am I still thinking about that Thanksgiving dinner from 20 years ago? Why is that still in my head? Well, I'll write it down and figure out why. In the essay, though, yeah, what I wanted to say was um, I wanted to recall a memory again from my writing teacher where I wrote a little narrative, a description of a train trip I took in which I met a guy, must have been 20 years old, and I had a little romantic interlude on the train and this guy sent me a red rose in the mail and it just seemed so lovely. And she, you know, covered it with red ink as was her (laughs) habit. It wasn't very well done. And I said to her, you know, kind of, getting my, getting the back of my hair up. Hey, you know, this really happened. So why are you crossing that paragraph out? And she said, 
I don't care if it really happened. I don't believe it. Maybe it happened, but that, that's irrelevant. You have to make me believe it. That's your job. And it had never really struck me that way, that my job was to, sure, use aspects of real life, but I had to rework them, change them, massage them until they were plausible in a short story rather than, oh, here's a weird thing that happened to me. I can tell you about it over a beer, but something that a person would read and say, oh, I know who that person is. I know that character, whether it happened or not in real life is, isn't relevant at all. Were there examples of that in this book where something did happen to you abroad? You're like, that's a, that's a great story, but not, <laughs> not usable. Uh, there were some things that were irresistible, but I felt I couldn't use them. I moved the whole, uh, my undergrads that I took to Europe, we went to Spain and I immediately moved it to London because I thought, nope, cut away from real life. I don't want to be portraying real people here. Yeah. There was a, a moment in uh, Dear Committee Members, I created a character who, an eccentric professor who, instead of visiting the men's room, he pees in old bottles and corks them and leaves them in his office. And I, I went to a reading one time and I read that passage and a guy came up to me and said, I didn't know anyone else did that. Anyone <laughs> else? Oh my God. I thought, anyone else? I thought I made that up. That's disgusting. But, you know, life can be stranger than fiction. I can't tell if that's so funny because he also did that or because he came up and told you that he Because he that told me about it. Yeah. Why would he tell that's, me? I don't oh, know. Just... One a... tiny real life incident that I, I used in the book, and that was uh, on one of the trips I took undergrads um, to Spain. And we were in the airport in the U.S. about to leave on our trip. I had talked to everybody about packing lists and safety and no drugs and, you know, all the sorts of rules that that we needed to, to know. And then um, I heard some weeping and exclaiming behind me at the TSA check-in and um, somebody had brought a taser in hmm. a suitcase. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah. who brings a taser? Um <laughs> Who has a taser? Yeah. <laughs> who owns a taser? Yeah. Other than police officer, who owns tasers? But um, yeah, this person thought that it might be dangerous over in over in Spain, so they had best have a taser along. And that hadn't occurred to me as something <laughs> to forbid on the trip. You know, loaded weapons, tasers, don't bring those along. Um, so it, it's a very minor moment in the novel, but otherwise, I I steer. I tried to steer away from any sort of references to real people, um, real incidents. Have you noticed in your students since you've been teaching for a long time, there's so many cultural changes. So I assume this is reflected in their writing as well. Do you think they're kind of restructuring how novels are told or stories are told? Or do you notice significant changes in how they approach their creative writing assignments? Um, well, I think on the undergrad level, even if you're teaching a fiction class or poetry, but especially teaching essays or nonfiction, people turn to writing classes to have a chance to put their emotions on the page. You know, in many instances, they're really pouring out their souls. Uh, I'm sure other people you've had on the show who teach have commented on, you know, the training that one needs in order to know what do I do if somebody writes to me about suicide or the desire to harm themselves or somebody else? Or what do I do if somebody writes about 
you know, being in danger at home. These things, they don't come up in math class, you know, Hmm. but when you tell somebody to put their thoughts and, (laughs) and emotions on the page, this stuff comes up and we're not trained as people who teach creative writing or English to be therapists, but that seems often to be the role that we we get cast in, in terms of needing to be able to react to the writing that students do. I don't remember years ago that level of personal distress coming into the writing the way it does now. Yeah, I guess what prompted that question is, as I'm reading these students' fictional responses in the book, mm-hmm. thinking I would have never written anything like that back in, you know, back yeah. in my day. So, no, I, I wouldn't have either. But yeah, there's there's a moment in the novel when he says he's requiring them to write a personal essay. One of the students says, well, how personal should it be? And he's thinking, my God, you guys are already writing things down that are so excruciatingly personal. I, I don't want anything to get even more personal. It's mind-boggling to him. And well, and I think he makes a point in there of saying something about, you know, these aren't confessional. Like you're supposed to do, you know, you're yeah. you're supposed to understand how something impacted you. You know, you're supposed to make yeah. a broader point rather than just, you yes. know, use it as a confessional. Yeah. Yeah. And of course it is a satire. So I take that tendency to a bit of an extreme with students writing to him constantly about their romantic lives. There's a, a couple of students on the trip who are sort of unreconciled lovers and each of them is always telling him about the latest drama in their relationship. You know, it's it's taken to an extreme for the sake of humor. But, yes, yes. Yeah. But the kernel is true. I mean, I do think the you have to tell true. tell writers don't do, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's not your job. Yeah. 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 But again, I think it's it's such a fraught time that we're living in and students are stressed out as are many other people, but students have deadlines and they're getting graded and there's a lot of stress that they undergo. And then when they take a class, it's not French, it's not physics, it's not calculus, but somebody tells them, hey, write something down, you know, think about something that happened to you last week and let's make a story out of it. There's a, there's a relief and a release and it can come sometimes with a desperation and a confessional aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah. Some, a chance to vent and express themselves, which they, they need. I think it's an important thing, but again, they need to know that as people who teach writing, we are not counselors. We are not able to help them in that way. You also had a great essay on in defense of an MFA. And Mm -hmm. I know one of your passion topics is this move away from the humanities and into STEM um, and, and people leaving MFA programs and my friend's MFA program just shutting down. Tell me a little bit about, because a lot of people just simply can't afford it. I mean, it's it's just outrageous. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about what you think the MFA program beyond kind of the obvious Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, make make the defense for the MFA for people who okay. may be interested in going into writing, but yeah. you know maybe can't afford it. Well, I would never advise someone to pursue an MFA if they are not getting funding to pursue that that degree. I mean, unless they have lots of resources and aren't worried at all about financing. But for the average person, I wouldn't attend a program unless um, they are fully supported. 
because it's to run up that kind of debt for, you know, to get a master of fine arts in poetry, you're not going to pay it off forever. You know, it's just, it's too large a risk to take, but there are lots of programs that do offer funding in the form of TA ships, et cetera. And those I wholeheartedly enthusiastically recommend. And the argument I make in that essay is why do people complain about writers coming out of Master of Fine Arts programs when that is the one place where a person can find support for an artistic pursuit. And I think people who are playing the tuba and painting and dancing, I think everybody in the country, everybody in the world, I wish everyone the chance to pursue their art. It's really hard to do that if you're working at a bank or a dentist's office or a hair salon. And I think the world would be a better place (laughs) if everybody had time to pursue something that they love, something aesthetic, something in which they can see and find beauty. I just don't understand the argument against it, particularly in terms of writing programs that you see constantly meaningless, mindless sniping about, oh, it's a writer who came out of an MFA program. You don't see someone say, oh, it's a musician and they came out of Juilliard. Well, they must play like every other flute player that came out of Juilliard. No, it would be a ridiculous statement. And it's equally ridiculous when you talk that way about fine arts programs in in writing. We are not in the business of creating clones or people who write like us. We want people to have a two or three year experience in the arts before they do whatever else they want to do in their lives. I just think it's incredibly important. So yeah, the soapbox, I could get on that soapbox for quite a while. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. So your students who are of that age, how do you advise them in the career in terms of finding agents? And because I, I, you know, the industry also, as we're talking about all these changes, everything's going through and all the conglomerations, collapses, whatever, reorganizations of all the publishing houses, finding agents, all of that is so much different than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And do you give them different advice now than you used to? Well, I think there are two um, ways of thinking about professionalization in the context of an MFA program. I know some instructors and faculty who just feel that the students should not even worry about it or be exposed to it during the writing process because it can stress them out. And I know some students in master's programs who just think, no, I'm not going to submit now. I just want to you know, close the doors to other aspects, to business aspects of this um, endeavor and try to get my novel done. Other people immediately come in and say, where's the agent? I want to talk to an agent. Where can we set up an appointment for me to look into internships? You know, when can I do this? So I think it's important to respect the, the former view, the I need to close the doors and just write sort of view, and also respect um, the desires of the people who really want to meet and talk to an agent. And we try to bring in agents almost every year so that students can ask them, okay, what's this like? How would I write to you? What what sorts of things do you accept and not accept? Uh, how would be a sign that I might be, you know, making a mistake or being ripped off by a different agent other than yourself? Um, just to be able to be informed. And in the Twin Cities, we're lucky enough to have 
you know, Gray Wolf Press, Milkweed Press, Coffee House Press, you know, university presses. It's a it's a massively literary environment that we live in. So it's easy for us to do that here. Yeah, I mean, you are in a very rich, rich situation. And just having that access to all of those people and yeah. information, <laughs> that, that would sell your MFA right there is yes. just, just the access. Well, we should cover writing advice that you give students, all the writing advice we haven't covered so far, we should we should cover now in our last couple of minutes together. Yeah. Are there things that you encounter a lot in students sort of recurring problems or recurring advice that you feel like you have to give out time and time again that we haven't talked well, about? I would say to the undergraduates, not the graduate students, some of them fall in love with the idea of writing particularly screenwriting, which is very popular now. You know, they they think of a, a direct ticket to Hollywood with, with an idea in their back pocket. And I tell them, well, what, what have you read lately that you love? Well, why do you love it? What was good about it? Did, can you outline the book? Did you tear it apart? Did you um, understand its structure? Did you study the dialogue and the way it works? Um, why is it funny? Why is it not funny? You know, just telling them to read with a sort of writerly eye and read a lot. That's something that on the undergrad level, the students aren't always as invested in as I think they should be. People don't read as much as they used to for sustained periods because they're used to doing everything on a little screen. I'm going to teach an undergrad class in the fall, and I'm hoping to prohibit technology of every sort in the classroom and to engage in things like silently silent reading mm. as a group because I really like that idea and there will probably be a small rebellion but I'm going to give it a whirl I was going to say good luck yeah <laughs> <laughs> and on the graduate level in terms of we didn't really talk about revision mm-hmm. and um, how you approach so it sounds like you push yourself through a pretty rigorous perhaps bad draft for a while and then yeah. go back on the right side of the pages we talked about to make notes. How many layers kind of of revision? Do you kind of have a, a process, sort of a tedious process of how you approach that? Oh, just over and over and over. That's the <laughs> yeah. tedium of it. Yeah. And yeah, that would be what I would talk to grad students a lot about in terms of fiction is structure. You know, writers don't tend to turn to writing because they love structure. They tend to fall in love instead with language and character, uh, wit, or, you know, tension, no matter what, what it is they're, they're um, reading. And they don't think first about structure. And so I talk a lot about, okay, your chapters are buckets. What are you going to put in each bucket? Or the um, events in, a, in the novel or the story should should function like a set of beads on a string. They should snap together. How do you think about cause and effect? I stress those things because they are, in fact, my weak points as a writer. They're things that I struggle with all the time. I love character. I love dialogue. But I, I struggle with structure. So giving myself a structure ahead of time and, in fact, putting the cart in front of the horse Telling myself, for example, I'm going to write a book in the form of letters of reference. <laughs> it just takes a weight off my shoulders. Um, I try to think about it before I start writing, but more often I come upon the structure in the process of writing. At some point, though, I have to ask myself, okay, 
these chapters are buckets. What is in my bucket and why is the chapter three bucket ahead of the chapter four bucket? What's the cause and effect and the logic in this yep. book? At what point do you transfer everything from your notebooks onto the computer? Once I have, I try to get the full draft, the, the full draft, just notebook after notebook. And then I suffer terribly typing it up because it's so awful. I think, <laughs> oh God, look at this. Should I even bother typing? What a mess. But yeah, I type it up and then it's it's a relief just to have it have one full draft. That also is something I I like to emphasize for students. Don't keep going back, even though that's something I have many times done myself. Don't keep going back and revising the first chapter because it may change depending on where the book ends. Try to get the whole thing down. And then at least you'll you'll have all the parts. It may look like a Frankenstein's monster, but at least it's your monster. And now you get to polish it up and dress it nicely and sew the arms back on a little bit more <laughs> gracefully than, than they were at first. Now you have a chance to really get to work. Actually, as you're talking, it's occurring to me, I have dictation software on Word. Ah. And so I, I'm thinking now, as you're saying this, you could actually read it into the document and that and reading it aloud would oh. reveal so many things to you that you wouldn't other. I mean, I'm sure you read it aloud oh. eventually, but yeah, as you're entering it into the Word document, A, it's faster and B, it would probably yeah, yeah reveal something. I hadn't thought of trying that. Again, another technological thing. I'm behind the times. I know. Yeah, right, right. Another <laughs> thing to learn, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> Julie Schumacher, this was such fun, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I love talking to you. That was Julie Schumacher. The book was The English Experience. You can find out more about Julie by visiting her website, julieschumacher.com. As I mentioned up there, you've got access to all of her books, writing links, interviews, and some great essays that she's written about the writing process that I highly recommend you check out. Of course, you can find, in addition to our Patreon page, Barbara at penonfire.com. You can find me at mariestone.com. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for this week. Check back in with us next week. Have a great day.